This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. What's your favorite thing in the world? Why is it better than everything else? The answer is how it was designed. There are hidden reasons why the world works the way it does. Today's guest will explain a surprising number of them through the lens of good design. As he says, no prior knowledge is required, only curiosity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. Subscribe to our series on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you find your podcasts. I'm pleased to welcome Scott Birkin to the show today to talk about his recent book, How Design Makes the World. Scott Birkin is a best-selling author with a background in the computer and internet worlds. His works include The Myths of Innovation, Mind Fire, Big Ideas for Curious Minds, The Year Without Pants, WordPress.com, and The Future of Work. Scott Birkin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Why is design so critical to the world we live in, and has it always been that way? Uh, well, design gets um, a shallow reputation. When people hear that word, they think of designer clothes, how things look, making things pretty. But that word has a much deeper and more significant meaning. If you think of your home, if you think of the car you drive, if you think of the software that you use, there were teams of people who spent months and probably years thinking about all the different decisions they had to make to build that thing and to figure out what it needed to do to help you get through your day. And for the most part, because we're so busy doing what we do, we're trying to live our lives, we're trying to be happy, we're trying to get work done, we tend not to even notice how much work and effort goes into all of these things. So design has always been important. And now that we live in a world where, unlike, say, how it was 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, where we were more directly involved with the natural world, now just about everything we interact with was made by someone. And um, so design has always been important. But I think it's become becoming we're increasingly dependent on how well things are designed or how poorly they're they're designed um, in determining what our lives are actually like. Well, people have been building things for a very long time, but you say there's a difference between building and designing. What's the difference? Well, the difference is, and this is this is sort of a nuanced difference. So let's say. Let's say that we decided we wanted to build a new software product and we decided we wanted to make a better, a better email application because everybody is frustrated by email. Their inboxes are full. It's too, there's two information overloads. So we decide, yeah, we're going to make a new email product. And as we start working, we're going to have a whole bunch of ideas. We're going to say, hey, we could add this thing that filters your mail this way. We could decide we could add a new, a new AI algorithm that's going to filter your email. And we'll naturally just get focused on the building. 
What's our schedule going to be like? What's our budget going to be? So the natural way most people end up doing their work is just to focus on the building, on getting the work done. And the distinction I make in the book between building and designing, designing means something different. Designing means you're thinking about quality. You're thinking, you're asking the question, what is it exactly we're trying to improve? We could go and build a new email application, but will it really be any better than the ones that exist? So what are we going to make better? And then once we think we're going to make something better, let's say we decide we want to make it so it's it's easier to manage your inbox and you don't feel as stressed out. That To do that means we have to go and study people. Like what What is it about the way email works currently that causes people stress? We'd have to go and do work to examine and research and understand the psychology involved. And so designing means you're going to take that, that latter approach. You're going to really think hard about the outcome that you want and how that outcome is going to affect people and what you need to do to make sure that what you build is going to actually be better. And that takes a lot more forethought. It takes a lot more skill and a different kind of skill to raise the quality in that way. So, I mean, I would say, of course, like the Parthenon or the Roman aqueducts or um, the Taj Mahal. I mean, those were all they're amazing, beautiful buildings that were well-designed. So they were built, of course. But the distinction is when you're working on something, are you really going to take this extra different perspective to make sure that what you're building succeeds? And those buildings I mentioned are very rare. <laughs> There's a lot of things that are built and sold that are really not well-designed. And that's why that distinction is important. Uh, you mentioned that the difference is... Uh whether or not you ask, what are we making or improving, or what are we making or improving it for? And I, I thought those were very pithy questions, and it really puts your mind on a different track. But recently, uh, a cognitive study uh, was published, uh, cognitive psychology, and it found that most of the time when people try to improve something, what they do is add instead of subtracting. And sometimes you make something better by adding, and sometimes you make it better by taking something away. But it's not natural to think of the latter. Do you have a point of view about that? I do. I'm so glad that you mentioned the study. Uh, I'm familiar. I haven't, I haven't read the whole study, but I'm, f I'm familiar with what you're talking about. This is a directly related to, to good design, that our natural instincts, again, to build most people who make things for a living, whether they're software programmers or a website designer, or even an architect who designs buildings or offices for people, these are all people who got into that line of work because they like to build. They like to make stuff. No one hires them to come in and keep things the same. <laughs> like their That's job true. is to change stuff. So that means that their bias inherently is to believe that by adding stuff to the world or adding stuff to your life, they're going to make it better. And the fallacy there is that really when you think about your life, the best kinds of designs that there are are the ones you probably don't even really notice, that they work so well that they just seamlessly fit into your life. So you think of something like a light switch, that it's a universal thing. You can go into almost any room anywhere in the world and you enter the room and you look by the wall at about arms level, shoulder level, there'll be a switch there to turn the light on into the room. And it works so simply, it works so easily that we don't 
even think about how much, how many years of work it took to develop both the light, the electricity, how to make a switch that works simply and consistently. And so this notion of improving things by, by reducing things or making them simpler is an advanced level notion because it's so easy for people who make things to fall into the trap of thinking, I'm just going to add stuff in. And that's the way I'm going to improve things. So that study is revealing just about not only human nature, but it's even more focused on the people who design things for us. They tend to be people who take pride and get ego satisfaction out of adding more and making things bigger and grander and having more features on them, and um, which works against the, the presumed goal of making things simpler for people. Well, Tell us the story of a design that failed, uh, the Segway, which was promoted as an exciting innovation that was hope, hope for it was that it would replace the car for lots of people for local travel, uh, but it didn't turn out that way. No, no, it didn't. Uh, for, for, any, for any of your listeners who aren't familiar with the Segway, you probably have seen them. There are these odd-looking scooters that are fairly tall they have um, that you, you the, the whoever's driving them has to lean forward, so they look sort of like they're going to fall over. And um, they're usually used now for people who are like security guards, or if you go to an, an amusement park, there'll be people who are official officials at the amusement park who use them to get around. And the story of the Segway has to do with an inventor named Dean, Dean Kamen. And Dean Kamen is a famous inventor. He has invented many important inventions that help people with disabilities people with medical issues. And the project for the Segway began as an offshoot for a product he already had. It was a, a wheelchair that allowed people to, it could rise up and tilt in different directions. So someone who was in a wheelchair had far greater access to things. That project began with the goal of, we have this wheelchair technology. What else, what other kinds of products can we make out of it? And so they thought about it on their own, in their minds, and realized, you know, this could just be a general purpose transportation device. So they made a classic mistake that engineers and business people often make of starting with something that already exists and immediately trying to repurpose it for some problem without doing the important step of asking these, these important design questions like we've already, we've already mentioned a couple of them. The first being, what are you trying to improve? But the second one, that's in the book is who you were trying to improve it for. The who, 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 uh, this means to answer that question, you have to, okay, most inventors say it's for everybody. And business people say that too. It's for everyone, everyone to use it. But the problem is there is no every person. Everyone has different needs. They have, their hands are different sizes. They're different heights. They're different widths. <laughs> There's a wide spectrum of different people. And what they specifically need. So to reach everybody means you have to break that down into different groups of people and study them. And they didn't do that. So they had this presumption that because their technology was interesting and it was cool, it's this scooter that goes really fast. It allows you to balance it in this unusual way. It's fun to try out and play with. It's like an adult toy. But they skipped over the step of actually going to people in the world who had cars and saying, what do you like about your car? What don't you like about your car? How do you wish it was different? And they also didn't ask the question, what about other kinds of transportation? What about people who don't own a car, but own a bicycle? What do they like about what they do? 
So they went along this this major business plan and they got major technology luminaries like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos to look at the demo and they all thought it was great. They all thought it was amazing. They all proclaimed things like this will be just as important as the internet. They they believed it would replace the car eventually, but none of them did any of the work to study people either. So the Segway launched, it was this very big PR campaign and it was a hype launch. It it had a code name called Ginger and it went on for years. What is Ginger? What is Ginger? And then they finally released it and announced it and everyone was excited at first, but confused because to replace the car, you have to design different roads. So, So even if this was a great invention, all the different pieces in reality that it would depend on didn't exist yet. And so very quickly it became clear that the Segway was not a general purpose creation for that would replace the automobile. It was a highly specialized and niche invention that had a very narrow set of needs. And had they asked better questions from the beginning, they would have been able to guess that that's the likely outcome from the beginning instead of falling into the trap of building rather than designing. Well, we can all understand why something like a Segway needed to be designed. It's new, it's modern, it was an innovation and uh, everything you just described. But some people in the design world believe that design is an innate and intrinsic part of everything. I'd like you to expand on this quote that you have in your book by Victor Papanek. Sorry, who seems to uh, consider design to be the basic dynamic of life. And here's what he says. Design is basic to all human activity. Any attempt to separate design, to make it a thing by itself, works counter to the fact that design is the primary underlying matrix of life. Design is composing an epic poem, executing a mural, painting a masterpiece, writing a concerto. But design is also cleaning and reorganizing a desk drawer, pulling an impacted tooth, baking an apple pie, choosing sides for a backlot baseball game, and educating a child. Now, that's quite a range of human activity. <laughs> so, so take your time and yeah. tell us what he's trying to say. So uh, Victor Papanek is a, a very important design luminary from the 1970s and 80s, and he was a pioneer in trying to get people who make products to think about the environment. And he had a very provocative view about, um, about design. And that's one of, the, one of the important things that he said. Now, what he's talking about here is something very, very profound in a way, but also very dangerous. So the profound part is the recognition, and that's part of the theme of my book, is that design is everywhere. And if you don't see it that way, then you're not really understanding how the world became how it is. And you also can't understand how it's going to improve, how it's going to get better. So he's offering this as a lens into just a basic understanding about the world that most people don't see. That if someone can design your apartment or someone can design your car, it also means someone, someone can design your public health system and someone can design your public transportation system. And it means they can do a good job of that or they can do a bad job of that. There's a whole range to the quality of our lives that's defined by design because design is everywhere. The process of coming up with 
picking what problem to solve and how you go about trying to solve it, building versus designing or other ways you want to look at it, that defines our lives. So that's part of his message is that it's something inherent in most activities. And also his message is that it's something that everybody does, even if it's just in a small way, naturally to be alive, you're going to design things. You're going to design your closet, how you put, where you put your clothes. You're going to design your spice rack in your kitchen. You're going to choose which spice goes where. Like Those are design acts. And that's a powerful, um, I think an empowering thing he was trying to say. The dangerous part and the provocative part that Victor himself, I don't, Mr. Papanek, I don't think he intended entirely for it to happen, but there is this problem now that some people believe that because everyone's a designer, it means that they're qualified to design a website or that they're qualified to design an education system or that they're, well, I'm a human being. Victor Papanek said, we're all designers, so therefore I must be able to design anything. <laughs> and that's where this this part, that's where some people mis, misinterpret uh, part of what he's saying. There's this popular phrase in the business world now called design thinking. And it's this very small encapsulation of what designers do. It's a it's a five-step process. It starts with empathizing, asking questions about who, what what's the problem, whose problem is it, how do I understand why they're having difficulty or what could be better? And then you prototype. You come up with a prototype and you learn from it. And then you have a few other steps, but the basic idea is you have to iterate. You go through a process. It's a loop. You try something out. You see if it's, if, if it's better as a prototype. You learn and then you repeat. And so this is taught now as something you can get a certificate in, that you're a design thinker. And hmm. the problem here, the danger, is that's just you've now just learned a five-step process. It's just a model. And it does help you in your life to design things to know a model. But what a professional designer does that someone with a certificate in design thinking can't do is have a much deeper base of experience and insight and practice, especially in a specific kind of design that allows them to design things well. So there are a lot of people now who learned about design thinking and think that equates to being a professional designer. So the, the joke in the book is somehow design is trivialized in this way in ways other professions are not. That we could also teach a certificate in surgeon thinking and <laughs> go learn the steps a surgeon goes through before he does brain surgery on you. You know, um, you know, sterilize your hands. Uh, you know, make an incision, uh, remove right. bad parts, uh, check to make sure the patient's still alive. And great, you get a certificate in that. But we would never assume that that certificate made you qualified to be a surgeon. But for design, for a bunch of reasons, that's often what happens. And so we do have people now who or have a self-inflated idea of their design ability because we've democratized uh, the term design thinking. And does the field of design think that if someone is a real designer of interior space, that qualifies them to also design a public health system? Well, um, mostly no. Um, and this is something, the design community, professional design circles, um, <laughs> it's just like any other profession. There are factions that have different beliefs and they argue and disagree about them. I think that you're, an interior designer would be, would be unlikely to think that they can design a, um, I don't know, a, uh, a, heart, a heart rate monitor, <laughs> uh, not since we're thinking about surgeons. Um, but 
there is some inherent practice and understanding of the process that would probably make an interior designer better at designing a heart rate monitor than a non-designer, than a random person you chose from the street to go and do it. Because there are some similarities and design thinking reflects that. There is a process and a way of asking questions and a way of understanding how to explore a problem, how to verify you've done a good job. So they'd probably be better than the average person. But there's too much domain knowledge in most kinds of design to really do a professional level job. Right. So, so in that respect, it's similar to issues of management, whether or not you can have a manager who, because she can run a factory, can also run a healthcare system. Yeah. Um, running things, there are commonalities about running things, but the domain really makes a big difference. Uh, you're in Seattle, and I'm in Jerusalem. I love cities, and your chapter on urban design was very, very interesting. So give us an example of a city that's well-designed for some activities but not for others, and compare it with a different city with different design strengths and weaknesses. Well, okay. Um, this is a great question for me. Uh, so I live in Seattle, <laughs> as you said, but I grew up in New York City, and New York City is fantastic in my memory. I have not been home in a couple of years to New York City, but New York City is fantastic in its density and compression. And so one of my favorite things growing up was just, and I didn't even think about it because I'd never lived anywhere else, but if you go to the, the, lower, if you, if you go to, to the, the lower end of Manhattan, the density of neighborhoods and how different they are is just this fantastic kind of liberating experience that you can walk from Chinatown to Little Italy. You can go down to Battery Park. It would just for a 10-minute walk, you can go to basically a different cultural region with more diversity and more um, access to different perspectives and different kinds of food than just about any other American city I can think of. And the fact that you have this grid system that is very rigid. Um, it starts to fail once you get down to some of those neighborhoods, but still it's loosely intact. So you can just walk around. You never have to worry about transportation. You can just walk. And that's one of my favorite things about all great cities is that I don't need a map. I don't need to know very much. I need to have a rough idea of where I am and where I, the neighborhood I want to end up in. And I can just walk and wander. And New York City is fantastic for that design goal. Now, to contrast it, uh, Seattle, uh, I love Seattle. I've been here now more than half my life, so I also this is also my home. But Seattle's geography is very different. Manhattan has the benefit of being, it's a strip of an island, so you don't have a lot of natural features that get in the way, or at least not anymore. Um, when Olmsted redesigned large parts of the city, it was more cumbersome, but that's a different story. Uh, in Seattle, Seattle is basically this H-shaped city because... The downtown area and the, the densest area is bordered on both sides by bodies of water. You have Lake Union and you have Puget Sound on the other side. So that means there's this narrow strip in between that compresses a lot of the city down. And as a result, the best neighborhoods, the most interesting neighborhoods, the closest equivalent to the diversity of 
lower Manhattan, it's separated out. You can't easily walk to those different neighborhoods. You need to either take you know, a Lyft or an Uber or take a bus or a streetcar. And so for anyone, a tourist coming here, a visitor coming here, you go to the downtown area and it's okay. And you're like, where's all the vibrancy? Like, <laughs> Seattle's supposed to be this great art city, this great music community. Like, where is that? There's this big highway or this big body of water. How do I get there? And I think Seattle, therefore, is a more, it's a little more of a mysterious city. You need to know a little bit more to figure out where those pockets of vibrancy are. And so that's the downside of it. But the upside is these little enclaves are often in beautiful areas that they're on the water. They're, we have mountain, we have mountainous hills. So some are, have great views from the hills. So when you do find these pockets, there's a lot more visual and aesthetic diversity than New York City has. But the trade-off is it's not as easy to find. And a lot of tourists and visitors never even get to see it. Okay. Well, that's the mega level of design. Uh, let's look at a smaller level and a company that's known for its design, which is Apple. It, its early and continuing success is, at least in part, due to design and style. Those are Apple's branding. Uh, and branding seems to be extremely important in our lives nowadays. What, why is that? Well, branding is a message. Uh, the, the, book, the book talks about, well, one thing I, w- I was trying to address in the book is trying to help people get past this, the basic stereotype about design, that design is just making things pretty. That design means you have a pretty logo. It means you have, uh, you know, your website looks, looks cool, that that's, that's all that design is. And making things pretty is hard, so I don't want to trivialize it. It's actually not an easy thing to do. But... Um, we do trivialize how things look as being not that important. So brand is this whole view of design as being the way you as a business owner or as a corporation convey to people what you do and why it's valuable. So a, a simple example about branding that most people experience but don't think about is a fast food company. So in the United States, McDonald's is still probably the most well-known food brand in the world. And what that means in the everyday experience is if you're driving on a highway and you're getting hungry and you look out over the horizon, you're going to see this yellow M. And instantly, you're going to know exactly what is on the horizon. You're going to know exactly what that means. You're going to think about a cheeseburger or french fries. You're going to know what that, what, you know, you're going to know if you go there what exactly the store is going to look like. You're going to know what it's going to feel to be inside. You're going to know what the menu is going to look like. All that will be compressed down. All that information is compressed down in our memory and our brains because of the value of that M brand. And so branding is a, is a kind of messaging. It's a way for an organization or a company to let you know what something signifies. And in a small, effective way, a logo, a, a sign on the highway, uh, to effectively convey all this information to you. Um, from their, the business point of view, it's, it is a kind of advertising, but for the consumer or person in the world, it is a way, as our survival brains work, of recognizing something of value and knowing how you can get it. And so when you start thinking about brand as a message and as a way to communicate a service, 
when you walk around your own home or walk down a street, all of a sudden you recognize how much design effort has gone into all of these things you didn't notice before. Every street sign, every advertisement, every um, flyer you see, there's teams of people who work really hard to craft those messages so that it has the desired effect on you and the choices that you make. And when you speak about the desired effect on you, some of the things you describe, some of the designs you describe in the book seem basically manipulative, another (laughs) method of manipulation. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so um, that's where this all becomes double-edged. Who's to say what is healthy? Who's to say what, what is good for us or for me or for society? I have my opinions about it, and they come up in the book. But what's often not discussed is how the pursuit of design and the way corporations are designed does not have society as its primary goal or improving society. It does not have keeping people healthy as its primary goal. A corporation by design, not always, but in general, it's an organization that is designed to profit and designed to benefit its shareholders and to put those benefits ahead of the needs or what's good for society, what's good for people's health, and what's good for future generations. So these corporations are designed machines that will take something like branding or something like marketing, which are just tools, will take all the skills of designers and tend to point them in the direction of doing what's better for the corporation than what's better for the consumer or the citizen. And the powerful forces of branding are now weaponized, that these corporations hire the best branding people in the world. I mean, I mentioned McDonald's, and they're a fantastic example. Uh, McDonald's is not health food. but <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> but, they're, they're, but they're not. Uh, they like to pretend sometimes that they are, but they're not. But they, their skills and talents at persuading you to want to eat their food are far more <laughs> their skill and power and budgets and resources they they put towards making you have that feeling about their brand are far greater than every health food company combined. So in the landscape of being a person in the world, you're at a disadvantage because the most well-armed designers or the companies that hire the most the the best branding designers are working to solve their problems rather than solve yours. And and it's a problem. And it, it's a problem with cumulative effects that um, are the way we look at the world now is so filtered by those interests that it's hard for us to realize how much influence they have on our decisions. Well, let, let's look at design in the context of those other forces. Uh, back in 1965, Ralph Nader wrote Unsafe at Any Speed, an indictment of the auto industry for its lack of concern with safety. It took decades before seatbelts and airbags became standard in cars. How much of that was a design issue? Uh, What other forces impacted the design there and and elsewhere? Yeah, it's it's one of these stories that reveals a lot because we, again, we, we take it for granted. No one even questions anymore when you get into your car that you put your seatbelt on, like you just do it. You just reach over your shoulder and you grab it and you, you put it down. But at the introduction of seatbelts, and America has one of the worst histories here about how that was 
managed or how that went, there was tremendous resistance to the idea. It was seen as unnecessary. Car companies believed their cars were already safe because no one was complaining about it. Um, and um, Volvo actually had uh, Niels Bolin was an engineer there. And he developed a better design for seatbelts, and Volvo used it in their cars. And Volvo was unlike the typical corporation. They thought this invention, rather than withhold it and put a patent on it and make sure we're the only ones who have it, thought it was important enough that everyone should be safe in their car. So they gave the idea away for free. To any company that wanted to use it could use it. But the problem was nobody was interested in it. Now, the corporations weren't interested in it because to add it would, A, indict them in the past for their cars being unsafe. It's kind of bizarre now, given how cars are sold today based on new new safety features. But back then, that was not how they were sold. So they didn't want to do that. But you had the other problem, too, that citizens didn't think they were needed either. There was not enough data yet. There wasn't enough information yet about how many people were being hurt or killed in car accidents. It was just something people didn't even consider. Much like how in America, cigarettes were seen to be this great healthy product that in advertisements, they would say, this is a health product. It will stimulate you and make you happier throughout the day. So it's a, the whole story about seatbelts uh, is a reminder about how we're always a bit ignorant. We always don't fully understand how the designs around us are impacting us. We have to always be asking questions. But to wrap up the seatbelt story, it took Ralph Nader, who did a lot of very important and difficult work going against the grain, to show these studies and to make sure that the public was aware of how much was known about the danger of these products, to get public attention for that, and to push forward to make these things be required at first in cars at all, and then eventually become legal and become required use. And so it's a fascinating story for something we take for granted and it seems so obvious, but it implies that right now today, there are things that we reject that we think we don't need, but 20 years from now, everyone will be saying, they were so dumb in 2021. <laughs> How did they not use this thing? It was, they had it, but they ignored it. And that reflects something about human nature and how slow it can be for us to accept progress and be open to it. We like to keep things how they are. Yes, we do. And we like it even more the older we get. Uh, one of the universal challenges today is the aging of the population uh, at a time when the pace of technological and social change are accelerating, leaving some of the elderly, especially the largest subgroup, uh, 80 years old and up, which is growing the fastest, uh, leaving them behind. What have you seen or heard of in the design world um, that's aimed at this population? Well, I am quickly becoming, every day that goes by, I get closer to being in that population. <laughs> so <laughs> when, when I think about this every day. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm 49 years old. Uh, I worked in the tech sector. I worked at Microsoft. I worked at WordPress, uh, important tech companies that make things that millions of people use. But I worked there at the age that's typical for young tech companies. I was in my 20s. It never crossed my mind to think about the size of the fonts I would use. <laughs> uh, we, had, we had good design standards at those companies, 
but I didn't really think too much about it uh, because it didn't affect me directly. And this is a fundamental problem with design and how we, without doing it on purpose, we tend to think of other people as being very similar to us in their needs and desires. It's very difficult to separate what you want as someone making something, what's going to appeal to you from what's going to really be, what's really needed for the people you're trying to serve. And so if you have a community of people who are the makers, the designers, who are mostly young white men, (laughs) uh, there's going to be inherent biases towards making things that are better for young white men than old female people of other races and backgrounds. And that's this has been borne out now uh, more recently in studies and research that shows even, even algorithms can be biased in that way, that the samples and data sets that they use to test their products come from those sorts of backgrounds. And that implicitly means the product itself is going to be biased. So this is a large and very serious problem. And there's more awareness of it now, I think, than ever before. Because like Ralph Nader, there are people now and writers and authors who have called these issues out. But it has not penetrated down to the level of the individual builder, the individual engineer, the managers at a lot of these companies to recognize the the wider impact that they have. And I do think that part of the problem, again, is the way corporations are designed. The corporations naturally want to design products that will tend to be the most profitable. And they know the primary markets for their products are people who are younger and people who better fit the demographic that will support them. And unfortunately, uh, there are groups that are not going to be well represented in that. They're not going to be they're not going to be as profitable to think about. And people who are older, people who have disabilities, people who come from different backgrounds are often basically victimized by those preferences. Um, But I do think it has gotten better. There's far more attention to these issues. And it is definitely within the skill set of designers to include and to, when they ask the question, who are we designing for, to say, there are these four groups you know, two of them are primary, they fit this, this profile, but we have these other groups we are responsible to design for, which includes people who are older. Because you know what? One day, that's going to be us. <laughs> so right. shouldn't we <laughs> want them to be taken care of? Shouldn't we want them to be designed for? And, um, and that's part of why I wrote the book, uh, this book, to try to have those kinds of questions not limited to being a special book about exclusion, because there are fantastic books that talk about this issue specifically, but that these questions should be central to how anyone, to central to anyone's knowledge of design, that this is part of the core knowledge to think about these sorts of questions. Yes, particularly since that group is the fastest growing demographic in the in America. So um, yeah, they... Yeah. They may not be buying more computers or video games, uh, but they have needs that designers, theoretically at least, could address. Yeah, I, I think yeah. you're you're poking at another issue that I didn't, I haven't mentioned yet, but you've been poking at it, which is part of how what this, what defines what a what an individual designer does. It's not just their design knowledge or design culture; it's their own culture that they live in. And America does not have a 
a, a real healthcare system for everybody. American culture does not center on generational families. And so that's inherent in American design culture. It's just not part of how we tend to think. And even though every 25-year-old engineer or designer at Google or Facebook or whatever company, they have grandparents, they have parents. Like it's not like they're an alien species that fell out of the right. sky and they have no they have no people who are of that age or will be of that age soon. It's just part of our, you know, a weakness in American culture not to be thinking I have to make sure that this thing I build will will help them and will will work for them. All right. One of your chapter headings is uh, solutions create problems. Give us an example of how that works and where design comes in. Yeah, so this might be the most depressing chapter title of any book I've ever written <laughs> because it's so hard to, once you start thinking about these these challenges to making good things, the goal is you realize it's hard just to succeed. Like it's, it's hard to solve a problem at all. So many things work against you from just the difficulty of building and the organizational challenges you have, convincing people, getting resources. Um, it's just hard enough to make something better. But even if you do, there's this paradox that doesn't often get discussed that if you make something and it's successful, it's going to create new problems. That's just inherent in how the world works. And so the example that comes up in the, in the, in the book, the primary example I use is the automobile. And the automobile has for a long time, for the better part of this century, been the primary, certainly in America, the primary individualized technological advancement that has changed people's lives. In the 1950s and 60s, it allowed people who didn't have as much wealth or money with a car, you could now buy a house 20 miles, 30 miles away from where you worked. A car allowed you to do that. And it transformed American society. It gave birth to suburbs. And it was seen as this great thing, this amazing, great thing that gave Americans more independence and Americans love the idea of independence. Now, the popularity of the car, for anyone who's been paying attention for the last 40 years, <laughs> when you have so many cars and you have just so many roads, you have traffic. And the infrastructure is part of design. Uh, this You had to know when you put in highways that the capacity for the number of cars they could have was limited. Like there was a mathematical formula that in the 1960s they applied and they knew exactly how much traffic you could get through. And once you went beyond that, you would have, instead of this 20-mile drive taking you 20 minutes or a half hour, it could take you two hours or three. And that is now the state of driving in many countries, America included, that traffic is now the primary part of that commuting experience. So the solution to a problem in the 1950s, how do you allow people to be independent? What's a better mechanism for transportation? Is now the endemic problem of transportation throughout the country. And because of the investment we have made, we've centered everything on cars instead of trains, or other kinds of public transportation, America is a car-centric transportation design, we now have this inherent limitation that's very difficult to solve. 
It's very difficult to solve. And so the goal of the chapter in the book is to enter this into what should be generalized knowledge for people who make things is that you have to be thinking one step ahead. You have to be thinking about what's the five-year horizon for this choice, the 10-year horizon. If everything goes well in this project, it goes perfectly well, what will be the outcome of that in five years or 10 years? What, what feedback loop will create will be created by our success that will make things worse in some way? And what can we do now to try to prevent that from happening? I, just like thinking about elderly po- the, the older population and how we're all going to go there, design has to become better at thinking generationally and recognizing that once you put something in place, it's not going to just last for a year. It could last for 20 years or 50 years. And the designer is responsible for thinking about that. And that's not the way I was really taught as a designer. It's not the way most engineers are taught, certainly not software engineers. But it really needs to be because, tech, as, I, as I said at the beginning, this is how all the stuff in the world is made. And if the people who are making it aren't asking these kinds of questions that you're raising, then we'll continue to have these very deep and hard to undo problems like car traffic uh, in the future. And I, I don't want that. <laughs> I, I, want a, I want a better future. And But prediction is very, very difficult. I, I imagine that the road builders in the 1950s would be stunned astonished, overwhelmed to know that families now have three cars and not particularly affluent families just because everybody's going in a different direction. Uh, I, I, yeah. I think that you're, it, it is fair to say prediction is hard. I, at the same time, though, I find it hard to excuse people who have the power to design who don't bother to make predictions at all that are not favorable. And so if you're the designer sitting down thinking, I'm going to design a new transportation system, and you make a prediction about the future, and every prediction you think through is a positive outcome, that means you are in denial of reality (laughs) because (laughs) you have to make a, a a spectrum of predictions. What's the best case? What's the likely case? But you also have to think about what's the worst case. That's not that hard a mental exercise to do. So to fail to do that and even do that exercise in a legitimate and sincere way, I think is a kind of, it's not quite an ethical failure, but it is um, almost, it's sort of like an integrity failure. Not to think that all the failures you've seen around you, that the people, that, that somehow you're immune to the possible consequences of your work in a way that every other designer and engineer in history has not been. Well, that makes a lot of sense, and that's that's a clue. If all your outcomes are positive, uh, maybe you need to think again. <laughs> uh, finally, Scott, as we speak, COVID-19 has redesigned the way we live, the way we work, the way we play, dating, shopping, healthcare, pretty much everything. What design challenges does the pandemic bring to your mind? I think, I think, well, I have, I have two different thoughts about this. Um, obviously, it has been, I, I've never, I'm half, almost half a century old. I've never experienced anything like this in my lifetime. I doubt most people my age have either. So the, the effects of this have been profound. And I don't think we fully understood how severe and how systemic the changes are going to be. 
I do think there is, I think it's going to take us a while to, to figure that out. And there's going to be a lot of caution in everyone about what, well, hopefully in America, there's some people who are not nearly cautious enough, but uh, yeah. I hope collectively, uh, there's not, not that I hope, I think collectively it's going to be slow steps for how we figure out what's, how do we stay safe? How do we prevent falling into a, a situation like this in the future? Uh, but uh, that, that leads me to what I think has been a positive thing to see, uh, cer- certainly here in the U.S., which is a new recognition and awareness of all of the design systems that we depend on that have been underinvested in, that we've taken for granted, that we would assume would always do their job from things like how to disseminate and distribute vaccines from the infrastructure for websites to get healthcare information, from the way information about what to do in a crisis gets shared. There's all these different systems that were, they've all been designed and now people pay attention to them in a very different way. And they're asking better questions about what's important, what's important to society, what's important for my true well-being, what's important for the people who do what's now called essential work for those people who we really depend on them for our lives to function, how is their life, how is their profession designed? Are they really paid appropriately if they're the essential workers? Are we taking care of them so they can take care of us? That I've never seen so much interest and attention given to asking what I think are society design questions. I've never seen so much attention paid to that before uh, here. And I think that is a very positive thing because this is not the only pandemic or crisis uh, you know, the world's going to have. This is, this is in our history. And it's going to be in our future. So there's a big wake-up call now and an opportunity to ask better questions about what's really important and where our resources should really go. Well, you've given us some interesting things to think about, Scott, and we very much appreciate your time. Uh, before I let you go... Tell us what you're working on now. What's next for you? I am still on this mission. So the goal of the book was to encapsulate all these all these important questions about how our world works and how we should be thinking about design in a way that can, anyone can access, that you don't need to have a design degree or, or be someone who has a design friend to, um, to learn about these things. So the book is part of a mission. So a lot of my time is spent going to groups of people who don't know that much about design or organizations and corporations who should know a lot more about good design and spreading the message and getting them to ask these better questions and to be more literate about some of these stories, which are really, which really illustrate what we want and hope um, future thinking about design will be like. So that's what, that's, that's what I'm doing. And that's what I'm going to continue to do. Well, you've certainly raised my consciousness about the issue. And I wish you a lot of luck going forward. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Oh, you're welcome. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov. Bye-bye.